0: Hey, here we go, April 29th, uh, 2012, lecture discussion number 66 on the book of Romans. And we kind of got to let's see where we are today in our little journey uh, through Romans and uh, the various detours. I throw a lot of detours in, as you're all very well aware now. That's just the way it is. It's the way it has to be, as a matter of fact. But quite a few of you have begun to notice um, the repetition of the same questions uh, no matter where you, where you are, or no matter where we are in Scripture, um, but it's really more of the same themes. Uh, I want you to begin, as you know, to be to recognize certain themes that always are in Scripture. Uh, some are more prominent than others than others, but almost every passage has a theme to it, and there's a repetition of uh, questions because of that. Um, um, <coughs> themes being more correct, I would say, than questions, and that, uh, is the case again. The Bible has its themes, its core concerns, if you will, uh, things that it hammers in, that God makes certain that you don't read any part of his Bible without finding certain core fundamental themes. And you know, if I just rattled them off, death, sin, judgment. Uh, The relationship between death and sin and the relationship between death, sin, to judgment. Salvation, substitution, sacrifice, just to kind of lump them into threes. Uh, reconciliation and resurrection and restoration. See, now I've gone from S's to R's. I used to go to a church where we would gamble on uh, every Sunday. Uh, four or five of us would put five dollars in a pot, and whoever—yes, it happens in churches. Yes, yeah. and um, we would guess the letter of the sermon because every every sermon had a letter assigned to it, and so it got to be kind of fun. Okay, it was a joke, a little cynical, bitter joke. Uh, Yes, uh, where we would gamble on who would get the letter of the day. But uh, So I just (laughs) noticed that I did that. But again, uh, um, you see these things put together all throughout the Bible. Servanthood and sonship and uh, inheritance. and, And of course, the big ones, you know, the joy, peace, eternal life, light and good. Uh, versus the gnashing, the wailing, the torment, darkness, evil, and eternal death. So, you contrasts of themes. If you get no place but this, the Bible is filled with this, right? That which is good and that which is evil. Ultimately, you end up with a good and evil list. That's what it's doing. Trying to explain the origin of evil and the origin of good, by the way. Not just So, I just rattled off a few of them. But all through the Scriptures... You're going to find those themes and then certain questions uh, come to the forefront whenever the particular category you're studying happens to arise or wherever you happen to be. uh, You notice that category and you'll notice certain questions uh, come with it. And additionally, some of the questions come up every single time, no matter where you are in the Bible, every single time uh, the same kind of questions. And those are the transcendent questions that always arise, no matter what They're there. They're core questions of Scripture if you wish to consider them as such. And one of those is God's goodness. (coughs) Excuse me. Every verse in the Bible, no matter where you are in the Bible, you should train yourself to ask, how does this verse demonstrate or declare are reveal the goodness of God. His love, his mercy, his long-suffering, his fairness, or his justice. We have been talking about Exodus 21, where we see things like the beaten slave. And you should be asking, every time you see something like the rebellious son being stoned to death, or the beaten slave that didn't die, or uh, uh, the stoning of the adulterous woman, or whatever, the killing of uh, the Canaanites... Um, where is God's goodness? How does this reveal His love, His mercy, His long suffering, His fairness, His justice? And if if you don't do that, if you neglect that fundamental question, or you find yourself concluding the inverse, which means what? Yeah, you you you're start running because uh, for lifeboats, you're here in the band and you're on the Titanic, and water is not your friend. But if you start concluding the inverse that God is evil or unfair or unjust, you find something in the Bible that the first thought comes into your mind is, I could have done this better than God, He's made a mistake here, then you're in, you're in the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean, sinking to the bottom. And, and obviously, sadly, that's my new phrase, by the way, I keep thinking about uh, phrases for t-shirts. So I have come up with obviously, sadly, as opposed to just obviously. Obviously, sadly, many readers of the Bible drown at the question of God's pure goodness and how it is revealed. I very rarely find somebody who will evaluate every verse in the Bible from the perspective of how it declares God's goodness. Very rare. In the church today. And the opposite is immediately grabbed upon. Almost like they're anxious to find that God is in error or capricious or maniacal or vile or violent or whatever they wish to have him be. Uh, they want to conclude that first. And again, that's error. Always error. Will never not be error. So... Many readers of the Bible drown at the question of God's pure goodness. And they also, therefore, fail where else? If you don't think God is good, where else are you going to fail every single time? You're going to fail at the deity of Christ. It's absolutely right. You should look at the Bible, especially the New Testament, and every time you read something in the New Testament about Christ, something he says, something he does, you should be asking, how does this reveal his deity? Because... Scripture does one thing about Jesus Christ, old and new. It always reveals, always reveals. There's no place in the Bible where the deity of Christ is not declared. It always does that. So if you think, if you're one of the ones who has read the Bible and you think that somehow you are the one who have found otherwise in Scripture, it's time to do what? Yeah, Get off the Hindenburg. It's, you're, going buy, you're about to see a fireball. You're in trouble again. You keep finding catastrophic things in your Bible scholarship. You're just jumping from one to the other. I have found, as I said, that any time that somebody begins to declare God is evil or not good, by reading something that they found anywhere in the Old Testament, primarily it's the Old Testament. Moloch is a good example. God has made a mistake at Leviticus 21. God has made a mistake at the Korah rebellion. God has made a... It's just constantly God making mistakes. Anytime I run into somebody who has that mindset, does not figure out that it's the opposite of that, they also struggle mightily with the deity of Christ. They they say Christ is afraid. Christ can't figure things out. Uh, he's fooled. fool. He doesn't know who the woman is that grabbed his uh, tally. Uh, he... He's just lost and confused. He wants to get out of his own crucifixion. And we end up with all kinds of just pure nonsense. Those two go together. The goodness of God, the deity of Christ, both are always declared in Scripture. If you think otherwise, like I said, what was it on the Hindenburg? Was it hydrogen or helium? I think it was hydrogen. Hydrogen explosion. That's what's coming your way. And those two are the fundamentals, if you will. And that's where you should always expect to start. But others constantly will find you as well. And um, there are questions that are are there along with those two. Because they are so tightly related to them. Questions on the origin of life. The definition of life. The purpose of life. All over the Bible. Um, You put it in the question form. Who made life? What is life? We were taught when I was young to go into every biology teacher's class and ask him to define life. And the reason we were taught that was why. What's that? Well, that's, that's absolutely correct. But mostly it's because life cannot be defined. There is no answer to the question, what is life? What's that? Yes, he did. That's right. And that's, the, and that's where police is absolutely correct. You cannot make a physical uh, definition. You must have a spiritual definition of life. And, and that raised that immediately in every college biology class or high school biology class that I ever went in, was to, was to bring it to that forefront immediately most of my teachers, by the way, because I'm what? Yes, older than dirt. You cannot find dirt that I don't have some kind of relationship with. Um, it doesn't know me. It's especially the case now. But the uh, point of it was is that most of my teachers knew immediately that there was no definition, no physical definition of life, only a spiritual definition. And that's uh, the point of the Bible, is that it makes certain that you know that. So you can ask, well, define life. What is life? Why then was life made? Very important. Why was life created? And, and by the way, life questions always lead to what other kind of question now? It's all over the Bible. Now, the will question. Why do we have will? What is the definition of human free will? Does our human free will survive the physical death of our body? What is the result of our uh, human free will? What has our human free will done? What does it continue to do? Why were we given it in the first place? All those questions come alongside of life, right? Because you were given life with what? Yeah, with free will. Why? So, those are two things always, and you'll recognize those as the supernatural and the natural, as you did so well uh, with that question earlier. So, uh, everybody be very, very what? That's right. Impressed with Felicia. But this is, again, the supernatural and the natural. Because, uh, just to repeat, life cannot be defined as physical and self cannot be defined as physical. That's how they fit together. Will, self, uh, is not a physical component. It's not a physical property. It is a mental property. And, and to repeat again, you are a mind or a soul or a spirit and you have a body. But your essence, you are a soul, spirit, mind. And, and, and that soul, spirit, mind has a body. And that's why uh, questions about life lead to questions about free will. Free will is a mental property as opposed to a physical property. Life is a uh, supernatural property as well as opposed to a physical property. We have a tendency to allow them, the uh, evolutionary philosophers, to dispute that. As you know, they insist that a whole of a person's existence resides in said person's physical body. And that the mind, the mental properties, are merely some kind of yet-to-be-determined physical property, which eventually, when they figure it all out, they'll be able to reduce to a particle. And I've asked you many times, how come, uh, if you are a, an evolutionary philosopher, or if you have evolutionary uh, concepts, uh, monism, cessation of existence, why is it that if you are um, a physicalist, that you believe you have no free will? Because if you agree and they tell you that they're right, I was looking at a course the other day where the whole point of the course was to convince me that they could reduce my mind to a particle, that my mind emerged from my brain. And I'm always interested in those kinds of things. As you know, it's kind of my hobby. I had a long conversation the other day with uh, Lindsay's mom and talking about uh, Alzheimer's because her mother and my mother probably, uh, her mother shows, is beginning to show pre-onset Alzheimer's. And so what's happening to the mind in an Alzheimer's victim uh, has become a hobby of mine. Why do I think I need to know? know, It could happen today. That's why. And so I spend a lot of my time, as you know, pretending that it's happening. (laughs) Uh, Much to the delight of my family. (laughs) Okay, anyway. Why is it that, uh, reducibility is so important? Why is it that if you, if you think that your mind can be reduced to a particle that that eliminates free will? Uh, let me try to explain as best I can. Small particles have no will. They're what? They're, they have no purpose, they have no value, they have no immortality. Small particles are exactly that they are just small particles. they are tiny physical properties that can be located, weighed, measured, and electrically and it's and electrically charged, or we can determine the electrical charge to it and if you agree if you think that the evolutionists are correct and they confidently assert that they are, if you accept that all that a person is can be found in his or her body and all value is physical. And by the way, you can see again the morality of that, can't you? If I am judging you based only on your physical capability, what have I decided about the very weak or the very old or the very young? That's where the eugenics movement, that is where Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and all of that garbage has come from. Physicalism. I am based or valued on my physical capability and that's it. That is the opposite of what? The Bible. Absolute, total, complete opposite. That is why evolutionary philosophy and and the Bible can never be compatible. Anyone that tries to do that, it just drives me What's the word I want? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Insane. That's right. Anyway. They, the, the philosophers, the eugenics movement, they all say that all we are, all our value is physical. And therefore, all existence has to be what? Random. It has to be purposelessness. It has to, and then it would be soon extinguished, and consciousness and free will are just merely illusions. You have no free will. Why again? Because you're just particles, and particles are what? Just randomly being particles. They have no intentionality. So if I can reduce the mind to particles, then I have eliminated uh consciousness and free will they're just merely illusions i think i have consciousness and i think i have free will and i'm just fooling myself that by the way is evolutionary teaching dogma monism paraphysicalism that is what they teach in every biology class in every university and if you don't accept that what do they tell you they tell you you can't you can't get a degree in biology If you say to them, well, what about the law of biogenesis? You cannot get a degree in biology. You must believe in cessation of existence. No free will. No goodness, by the way. I'll get to that in a minute. Only purposelessness in order to get a degree from our university system. Most of which are public. And if you doubt me on that, a little research will point out that's the case. Because that sums up random purposelessness, extinguished, cessation, no consciousness, no will. That sums up secular humanism. And they control our institutions of higher learning today. And they also control 99% of our media. By the way, secular humanism is an ancient philosophy. It's really also called or it is, secular humanism is hedonism, and it dates back thousands of years. And Mr. Darwin uh, just posited a concept that the hedonists and the Marxists, for example, saw as advantageous to their agendas. Darwin, as you know, he posited adaptation um, becomes interspecies evolution. Something that I have made a mistake saying, by the way, and, and I need to get out of it, um, you need to know things change. The evolutionists do not accept something that we call uh, microevolution. They don't accept it. There's evolution and there's nothing else. That's all they believe. There is no microevolution. There's adaptation. And that's all that Darwin did. He took adaptation and he decided that it would eventually lead to interspecies species. Um, Evolution, or if you will, an interspecies creation or an interspecies uh, process. If I have an interspecies process, that is, in other words, if I have a species created through an uh, evolutionary adaptation process of some kind, natural selection, whichever one you want to make, what have I taken out of the species development? I have taken goodness out of it. Because now, there, uh, I remove goodness. And if I remove goodness, what do I remove as well? I remove will. In other words, creation or species did not come about by design. Design would, be, creation is good. A creator would therefore also be good, and a creator would will or intend something to occur. If I can have uh, interspecies evolution, then I have no will. I have just a random event or a random process. If life is based on a random event and a random process with no purpose, it's just accidental, then there is no free will, and there is no essentially no consciousness, no anything. And there's no goodness. There's only particles. Particles are just particles. And thus, hedonistic self-worship. If you don't understand how I get from no will, no goodness, no uh, creation, no immortality, no accountability to hedonism, see me later and I'll explain it to you. Hedonism becomes self-worship, self-gratification, and has been very common through history. It is, by the way, very, very prevalent in today's society, is it not? Everything is about the self. What's in it for me? What can I get out of life? That, by the way, is the opposite of what God says in his Bible, isn't it? His purpose for you is what can you give to others? And all of that brought us to James chapter 2, as you know. And that's where the Bible tells us not to be ensnared by such obvious lies. It is so obvious you should not be fooled by it. How can anybody be fooled by this? It is a deception. It's a lie. And how ironic, by the way, that physicalism was designed, has its origin from who? Who is the father of all these lies, John eight forty four. 44? See, its whole origin comes from uh, what I would call very carefully, however, a non-physical being. Non-physical in the sense that Satan has absolutely no doubt about his immortality, or yours for that matter. How interesting that he would uh, think that uh, he could make us uh, believe otherwise. And that's fascinating to me, as you might think. All of the angelic ra- uh, uh, realm, uh, um, and I made this comment uh, the other day to Catherine. Uh, I said if a body was in a, in a room, a dead body, and we walked in, Human beings, we would go, this is horrible. We have a dead body in here. Uh, what are we gonna do? A uh, person has lost their life. Or if an angel walked into the same room and saw the same dead body, what would he say? Here we go, oh, well, we have a temporary suspension of physical activity. The life has not been lost at all. That's just a suitcase. Or that's just a mechanism or it's just a, an airplane, or whatever you want, a car or a horse, in the sense of the ghost and the horse, or the rider and the horse, or the pilot in the plane. Whatever analogy you want, they would see the body not as the person, and they would wonder, where is the person? Where well, we foolishly think the person is the body, even though we should be trained otherwise. How fascinating that the origin of the lie that cessation of existence or physicalism, if you will, all that we are is a physical entity. that The origin of that is somebody who knew very well that it was not even remotely true. It's absolute, total, complete nonsense. He knows it. Cessation of existence, by the way, was never part of Satan's original lie. So, that's the abundance of his traffic, Ezekiel 28.16. And so, that fascinates me. Because the angelic host, they know fully, they fully understand the differences, or the difference between temporal death and eternal death. Only humanity is deceived by the cessation of existence nonsense. We're the only place. You can't even get a... You can't get a, a guinea pig to believe this. Certainly not the angelic host. Only humanity. And only that of humanity which considers itself to be the most enlightened, generally speaking, believe in cessation of existence. And so, I find that to be ironic, and, and, and as is my usual habit, I contemplated the first committee meeting, where it was, where Satan proposed This addition to his system. And and I don't underestimate Satan's uh, uh, intellect. It's extraordinary. The Bible says he was filled to the brim with intellect. So he's certainly smarter than I could ever imagine. And he thinks uh, in ways that I cannot imagine. But I still try to. And I assume that there's some kind of committee meeting with the new idea, because he's not outside of time, and he obviously uh, puts his plan, and he maneuvers it and manipulates it as he goes. He responds. He is not proactive. He is reactive. Who is the proactive one in the contest? It is God who is proactive. But anyway, so I assume that Satan has a meeting, and he uh, has decided to convince the post-flood humanity of uh, cessation of existence upon physical death. Because you could not convince pre-flood humanity of that. Why not? Because I had, uh, if you will, commingling between the angelic realm and the physical realm. And I had the Garden of Eden. I could sit down and talk to Adam. Uh, Adam had wisdom and under it, You could not convince anyone prior to the flood that there was cessation of existence upon physical death. And that all we were was a physical entity. Anyway. This idea that Satan proposes, cessation of existence, monism essentially, that idea never really grabbed hold until the 19th century, so it's relatively new. And so I can imagine the committee uh, having trying to institute this monism, and they got a little bit, uh, you know, they got some places uh, reasonably well, but overwhelmingly. By the way, what percentage of the United States uh, is monistic? It believes we cease to exist upon death. What percentage? Do you know? You ever see the percentages? It's about it's about 10%. That's all. Almost 80-90% believe that we will survive physical death. Only about 8-10% to 10% think that when somebody dies, they cease to exist. At least that's how they answer the polls. And, and I believe that's reasonably accurate because uh, the position is so easy to destroy. Uh, uh, certainly, everybody knows somebody that can do that. Anyway, so I start to think the committee has to do this. They're, they've decided we're going to convince people that they cease to exist. That's going to be in our new uh, plan of Satan. Satan is institutionalizing it and, uh, and we're going to uh, put our efforts and our resources. And, uh, and for hundreds or thousands of years, there was really no return on their investment. But finally, Satan's low opinion of humanity has prevailed uh has shown that we will eventually believe anything no matter how absurd, no matter how indefensible immortal beings will and 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 have been able uh to uh uh been convinced that they cease to exist. You have entire countries now that are atheistic europe primarily atheistic the United States is almost uh on its own now uh we're considered to be uh, uh, backwoods hicks uh, compared to china russia uh, and uh, uh, Europe, as you know communism its number one foundation is atheistic that 's what communism is foundationally is atheistic so uh, you 'll see mao and and uh, and the communists of Russia, their intention was to destroy any remnant of uh, of a church structure so Imagine the derision, the mocking laughter from those who first began to implement the lie of cessation of existence. They must have had doubts. They must have thought, who could possibly believe this? They are, of course, evidence that it isn't true. Their very existence is evidence of it. And they know that we are a two-component being. They watch us die. They know there's no cessation of existence, but they're going to convince humanity that there is. Could, could anyone be gullible enough to fall for this, but never underestimate the human predisposition to run into highways? We puny, frail humans are nothing if we're not consistently suckers. And just so you know, how long is this going to last? This evolutionary philosophy, monism. How long? How much longer has it got? Not much. Satan's going to do what? He's going to destroy it. There will be no atheists in the tribulation. Not one single one. So he's putting in something, and he has put it in over thousands of years, that he intends to totally destroy. I want you to consider why he's doing that. He has a very carefully thought out plan. What do you do during the tribulation? You are not an atheist. So you must worship somebody. Who do you worship? You worship Satan. The Antichrist. Satan and the Antichrist combined, right? The combining, the entering in. He makes sure you worship him. You've got to get what? It, I just, its it, it just kind of, like I said, I, I have an odd uh, behavior here. It fascinates me to anticipate the academic community of this country when they all bow down and worship the Antichrist and cease to be atheistic. And they all know, by the way, uh, they will all know pretty soon, it's just a matter of time, uh, they will all. there will not be a single person on the earth who is an atheist, not one. You will have believers in the true God and you will have believers in the false Antichrist. That's all that will be here. Nobody else. And there is no unbelievers after physical death either. Now there's just rejectors, right? And those who accept it. Okay. Let's, uh, let's get back to James 2, all of that to get us to James 2. And once again, let me read it at least in key pieces, at least the parts of it. And make sure that we get through it. Uh, So James 2, verse 1. My brethren, we're going to just go four verses here. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Again, we have a theme, right? We're going to prove the theme. What is the theme? Partiality. For if there come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. So I have this dichotomy, this this contrast. I have the rich man and the poor man, right? And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? So right off the bat what is partiality? It's evil. What's the obvious question? How is it evil? Okay, here's what's the next obvious question. If a very wealthy man came in here throwing money up in the air, would we let him sit in the front row? Would he go through in the first in the buffet line? Okay, he walks up and says, everybody that will let me go through first in the buffet line and will let me, hey, I want to be the chief elder. And everybody gets a new Cadillac. How would we vote? How many churches? <laughs> Fortunately, we're not filming your response for the Internet audience. They, they think you're still pure uh, <laughs> and you can't be bought. Obviously... Obviously, we're struggling with our, uh, our, we're now negotiating our price. <laughs> the point of it is, is that partiality uh, is evil. But the church today is what? How do you get on the elder board in most churches today? You give them the most money, you own the elder board. That works. Simple. Every church I know. Except obviously this one. <laughs> I think everything is relative, but but it doesn't take much money to get on this elder board, that's for sure. Just look at the ones that are on it, right? Okay. <laughs> it's critical in the understanding of James 2 to note the context. Oops, I dropped my pumpkin roll. Ah, thingy, I don't want to lose that. Uh, it's critical to, this warning to not show partiality, that partiality, it's a warning. If you show partiality, you're going to become evil as a church. Evil as a person. It's an act of evil. And you can't go any further without recognizing also that I have this contrast between a rich man, and we've discussed this over and over and over again, and the poor man, right? Those two things are happening right off the bat. The rest of James 2 centers around the fact that I have partiality that is evil and I have this contrast that uh, continues on through the passage. And it's very important to know about this contrast between the rich man and the poor man and to track it as you go through the, the, uh, the passage. The rich man, I'm going to say clearly, as you heard me do before, he's identified His character is assigned to certain words, and I'll read them for you. He's assigned, um, uh, let me read on here. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme? So the rich man is, is evil, an oppressor, a blasphemer. Eventually he's called unbelieving, he's called dead, and he's called foolish as you track him through the context of James 2. So if you get to pick, which one do I want to be in the story? Are you the rich man? Then you're dead. And I'm going to tell you, it's not really a rich man. What do I say? It's always the same. He's a Pharisee or a fool. I'm going to call him a rich Pharisee in the context today because it's obvious he's a Pharisee in the in the story. So the context of James 2, if you're trying to negotiate your way through the book of James and you don't start out with partiality is evil and I have a rich Pharisee and a poor man. And the poor man is called a neighbor who is naked, who is destitute, but a believer, a receiver of God, chosen of God and an heir. Which one is the saved and which one is the unsaved? The rich man or the Pharisee is the unsaved. So every time I listen to him as he talks in the story, I have to know who he is. How many times people read this James 2 and they, they take the side of the Pharisee all, all the time? In fact, they walk away from James 2 and they say, Hey, James 2 says that uh, I got a, my salvation is based on works. And in the meantime, the Pharisee, as I said, is called a blasphemer. Foolish. Dead. Uh, let me, uh, let me give you this really fast so you see this connection. Let's go to uh, Revelation 3.15. You should immediately know. Okay. What am I talking about? Revelation 3.16 is what? It's famous. Is the vomit verse. Here is Jesus Christ talking to the Laodicean church, which I believe is the church, the contemporary church of our generation. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That is Christ talking to the church of our age. I'm convinced of it. Because you say, what's he say? What does the church of the end of the age say? I am rich. Really? I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see the same words showing up here? Same as James 2. I got nakedness, I got destitution, I have rich. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. That's himself, by the way. That you may be rich, really rich, and white garments that you may be really clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye so that, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And therefore, be zealous and repent. See again, he says that the the rich man there is wretched and blind and not rich and not clean. He's filthy. It's the opposite. The filthy uh, uh, poor man is really the clean one. And the rich fine man in James 2 is really the filthy one. And the poor one. Do you see that? That's what's going on here. If you think that the rich man in the story is doing good, well, you are upside down. Back on the Hindenburg you are. Okay. So recognize the relationship uh, between Revelation 3.15 and 19 and James 2, and the contrast that is in both. So the rich man, the rich Pharisee, he's going to propose some arguments here in a minute. He's going to engage in a debate. The one who believes that he is rich will debate somebody in this passage in James 2. He's going to debate James the Just. Okay, who is James the Just? He is the oldest of the children of Mary. The mother of the holy thing. So now, the one whom God chose to put the holy thing in, right? Which is Himself. Now, let's read James 2. We'll start. This is this debate. I have the rich Pharisee who thinks he's in need of nothing, who thinks he's rich, and who thinks he's clean. And Christ says, you're not rich, you're not clean, You're blind, and you're certainly not something else. Because the rich man thinks he's in need of nothing. and That isn't true. What's he in need of? So here's the debate between James the just and the Pharisee. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says... So who's going to say, who is the someone in the context? I propose to you that the someone who says is the rich Pharisee. If he says something. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, And one of you says to them, depart, now who's, who's in the story? And one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do, you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What is the context of that verse? The context of that verse is the discussion between a Pharisee who is dying and filthy and thinks he's rich and thinks he's clean and thinks he has need of nothing and James the just. That's the context. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe in trouble. But let me slow down here. But do you want to know, O oh fool, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son on the altar? That's a fantastic picture of Christ. Don't take that out of there. As Genesis 22 as opposed to Genesis 15, do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for salvation, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Abraham or not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What do you have to have here? You have to have the correct definition of that word. How many of these words are in that sentence that I gave you? I wrote works on the board for the people on the internet. Two people are going to use that word. One of them will be James the just. Ah, Down goes Frazier. And the other one will be the Pharisee. Do they have the same definition of the word? No. How does James define it? Okay, immediately. James the just. Let me start again. If someone says he has faith, what's implied? If I said to you, one of you thinks you have faith. What did I just imply? That you don't have it. You think you've got it. Does the rich Pharisee think that he is in need of salvation? Do the Laodiceans think they need salvation? What do they have that makes them think they don't need it? They got money. And the, sac- well, in the Pharisee's case, but the Laodicean church, well, we got some money. But you're absolutely right. The rich Pharisee has not just a sacrificial system, he has circumcision. And he's convinced, he's saying, he doesn't need it. Don't talk to me. I don't need it. Got it. I'm in. Actually, I tell this story a lot. I actually had a guy come up to me a few years ago and tell me to my face as honestly and as sincerely as he could that God loved him more than me. Okay? This should be good. And the reason he thought that is because God gave him more money. God's love is how much money he gives you. Do you think there's any possibility that that's true? If you do, look around. You're in the middle of the highway and the semis are rolling at you and start dodging and weaving, you know, kind of go in and out, start practicing because you, you're in so much trouble. If you think God loves people and demonstrates it by giving them money, Holy mackerel, honey child. I don't know what to say. Are you in trouble. How many people, though, believe that? Lots of them. I found one. I found more than him. He was just one of the first that would tell me to. I don't know if he still believes it or not. Probably he does. The opposite is true, by the way. That's how come I know God loves me more than you. Thank you for laughing. I worked hard on that joke. Neither is true, right? God shows no partiality. Okay. If someone says he has faith, notice the implication of the word if. Immediately, James the just is casting doubt on the rich Pharisee's faith claim. And he is casting doubt on what basis? Because the rich Pharisee says immediately, he says it to the naked and the starving. So again, this contrast, the rich man Pharisee who believes something, the rich man Pharisee believes he is clothed, he believes he is rich, and he believes he is in need of, of nothing. Define in need of nothing. In the context, it's obviously salvation. The rich man believes he is in, he doesn't need salvation. He believes he's got it. Now, define faith of the rich man. What, what does the rich man believe? He believes he's saved. He believes he's blessed. Just a second. He believes that he is, doesn't need to be saved. He thinks he's clothed. Is he right? Is wrong on everything. Does he need salvation? Yes. That's the context. So what he believes, will it save him? No. Everything he believes is wrong. Go ahead. Oh, absolutely. The Pharisees kept selling salvation all the way through to the end of the temple. Well, they're still selling it. They're not alone. I mean sold everywhere, every day. What does that brother loves traveling salvation for sale show, right? Always sold. Uh, I, I, when salvation isn't sold, I am shocked. When I run across the church, it says salvation is free. Come, sit down. We take nothing from you. We want nothing from you. Those are so rare now, it's scary rare. Okay, next, the definition of the word works is established. A brother or sister, one of the definitions, the definition that the Pharisee has of works versus the Pharisee or the definition of James the just, right? So we're going to establish one of those definitions. You have to assign it correctly. A brother or sister is freezing to death. That's what it means, by the way. Naked, freezing to death. And destitute, which means starving. I have a freezing, naked, starving to death person. And what does the person who says he has faith? If a person says he has faith, okay, that's the who's going to talk to the starving poor person that is inheriting, who is a believer, a brother, a brother or sister, that's a saved person, is naked and starving, freezing and starving to death, and one of you says, who's the one of you that says it? The Pharisee says it. And what does he say? Something really, really interesting. Depart. He says, depart. Okay. Okay. Let's just put it in Alaska form. It's January. Somebody comes to your door, they have no clothing, they're freezing to death. How long are they gonna last? Twenty minutes? They have no food, and they're hypothermic. You answer the door, and you go, "See ya." Go in peace. Uh, be warm. And filled. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, we talked about the poor lady, bless her heart, that thought that she could live on sunlight. Um, That's a process, intellectual process, that needs to really be evaluated. One, she believed it was possible. And two, I'm not convinced it's true. It's just one of those things that demonstrate that humanity is, there is nothing that we won't believe as human beings. Uh, but uh, she has to think, uh, I'm going to live off the sunlight because somebody told me that I would. And, that, uh, and, and completely her mind has to destroy her survival systems. Yes, go. We are still in James 2. And we are at 16. Works is defined as depart. Say, depart to the starving, freezing person. How long are they going to live? So what are you really saying? Go die. Right? person knocks on your door and you say, go die. Is that? What is that? Who does that? Okay, obviously the Pharisee tells the brother or the sister to depart and die and obviously the rich Pharisee That the church has shown partiality to. That person in the church is put where? How do we start? Put in the front row, right? Put in the front row. While the poor man in filthy clothes is told to stand, or worse, sit here at my footstool. What is meant by sit at my footstool? Yes, slavery. Absolutely right. Ownership, superiority, possessiveness. Romans 1.11, there is no partiality with God. God does not do partiality. He calls it evil. So if you see someone who says he has need of nothing, who tells the poor to depart to and die, if he says he has faith, what do you conclude? You conclude that his faith is dead, whatever it is. Now you get into a discussion on why do you love? And then you get to, how do you love? Then you must decide, define love your neighbor. Depart and die when they need life. See, do you say to the person who is seeking life, do you say, depart and die? If you do, do you love them? How do you define works? How do you define love? What is the relationship? See, loving your neighbor is sitting them in the front row. All and any of them, because all and any are the same. Everybody sits in the same place. Everybody has the same status. There is no one who has more status than any other one. God has no partiality. Never say to anyone, depart. God wants who to be saved? Every single person. He says so. He wills that none should perish. How come people perish then? Back to will we go. But never say to anyone to depart and die. Are hey, you following that a little bit? Hang on, i got to go. I'm down to three or four minutes. You can get me afterwards and we'll finish it again next week. Next, the rich Pharisee says to James the just, what's he say? So far I have a rich Pharisee that sits in the front row and he says a couple of things. He says he has faith. He says depart and die. and Then he says this on verse 18. You have faith and I have works. That's in quotes. That's a quote of the rich Pharisee. What's he saying? What's that mean? You have faith, I have works. If I come to you and say, you have faith, I have works. What am I saying? What is works to the Pharisee? Back to Mike. It's law, sacrificial system. It's circumcision. It's obedient to intricate little rules that he's decided and devised and procedures. And it is his public image. He's a Pharisee. He's good at this stuff. He has a rope. He knows how many steps he can take. He knows where he's got to be. He knows what what ceremony to do. He's got it all down. And he is what? He's saved. He is saved by what? Oh, it's worse than that. He's saved by who? Himself. That's right. You have faith. I have me. Your salvation system's based on obviously not you. You can't cut it. You stink. Me, I'm saving myself, baby. I'm good at this. I have works. And then James responds to that. The Pharisee is clearly asserting his superiority. Notice it. Again, is a quote by him. James responds and he says, Show me. Show me. Prove it to me. I will prove, I will prove it to you. You prove it to me. Show me and I will show you. Prove to me your works are superior. Your system, you are superior. Prove to me you're better. What are we, what's the context of the whole chapter? No one's better. And it's all about a guy who says what? He's better. And it's all about a church that does what? Treats him like he is. Does the church today treat the religious people as if they are better? What's that? What does God call? It? Yeah, he calls that partiality, and he says, that is evil thoughts. Stop it. Stop worshiping the pastor. He's just like you. He's in need of. He's the same. We are all the same. James says, I will prove that faith alone in Jesus Christ saves, and I will prove that your your works are uh, useless and dead. Okay? So the proving of belief versus the proving of works is now front and center. Who can prove what is true? And the key view in or the key verse I'm sorry in my view is this fantastic verse in James two twenty. But do you want to know the truth? What's the answer? Does the Pharisee want to know the truth? No, he doesn't. The rich fool, he calls him, do you want to know, oh foolish man? The rich fool, the rich foolish Pharisee does not care what is true. And Bill and I got into this a few years ago. Does the truth matter? Does the truth matter to those who see only the physical, those who focus only on the physical reality? Do they want to know the truth? And the answer is immediately given. O oh foolish man, O oh foolish man! The truth doesn't matter. They will remain to, uh, they will choose to remain fools. Okay. Next week I'll clean it all up. I'll get us Exodus 21, Leviticus 21, Leviticus 19, Abraham and Rahab, and hopefully it'll be in a nice bow and onto Romans 5. Let's rise, be dismissed.